Amen. Man, it's amazing the things the Lord will do uh, when he just frees you up to love people. Uh, and that's what the gospel does. It frees us up to love him and to love other people and to love this life that he's given us. And man, when you really look around and love people with some gospel intentionality, it's amazing what the Lord can do to open doors. And you're right, we may not see anything uh, right off the bat, but man, the Lord uses those gospel seeds. And it may be later, 10 years down the road, where like a, like a little stick of dynamite, it goes off in somebody's heart. And uh, so man, may God God help us to sow lots of gospel seeds uh, through living life together on mission. That's just what a local church is, believers who live life together on mission. So praise God for that. Thank you for sharing, Kathy. Uh, Do we have a children's devotion this morning? (laughs) Well, we might. um, uh, Are they back there? Okay, so we do. Uh, So, yeah, so we do. Uh, If you do have children between the ages of 4 and 10, and uh, if it would serve you to release those children to a children's devotion, you can do do so at this time. (laughs) There he is. Uh, Bad time for a bathroom break, Stephen. (laughs) Uh, So you can go ahead and release your children. They will bring them back at the end of the service. Thank you, Nate. Thank you. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Luke. Chapter 18, for those of you who are just kind of joining us here this morning, maybe for the first time, I've been preaching through the the Gospel of Luke. That's really what we do here uh, most of the time as we preach through different books of the Bible. And I've been in Luke here for a little while. We're now in Luke 18, and we'll be reading verses 9 to 14 this morning. Luke 18, uh, reading verses 9 through 14. Let's pray before we read. And and why why don't we do this? Why don't we stand as as we pray and read this morning? So, Father, we just thank you. Uh, We just thank you for every opportunity to join together here on Sunday mornings, Lord. And uh, and we just acknowledge right now that we are the needy ones here. Lord, we do not believe that you are a God who needs anything from us. We believe that you are the all-sufficient one, Lord. So we don't come this morning to bring you anything that you would maybe need. Lord, we acknowledge that we are the needy ones, and we come to you now. We ask, Father. In the name of Jesus, that you would feed us through your word. And we do believe, Father, that, that when we come to you as needy people and look to you for help, you are glorified in that. that. That we are acknowledging that you are the great one, not us. So, Lord, we just acknowledge we need you and we ask that you would feed us now, Lord. Through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Please be seated. That parable right there about the Pharisee and the tax collector, in my estimation, that might be one of the most important teachings in the entire book of Luke. Uh, as many people would say that, I was reading something um, just this past week by Brian Chappell, he said that, that he believes this is one of the most important passages in the entire book of Luke, and why? Well, because Jesus addresses a particular sin there, which is one of the most common of all sins. It is one of the deadliest of all sins, and yet it is frequently one of the most overlooked of all sins. And the sin that Jesus addresses here is the sin of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is one of the most common of all sins. Self-righteousness exists to some degree within every single human heart on this planet. Self-righteousness exists to some degree within every single church on this planet, including this one. And self-righteousness is one of the deadliest of all sins. Martin Luther used to talk about the black sins of unrighteousness and the white sin of self-righteousness. And Luther said that the black sins of unrighteousness, the obviously dark sins like drunkenness or adultery or stealing and so on, he said those black sins of, of unrighteousness had slain thousands of people. Meaning that those types of sins had kept thousands of people out of heaven. But Luther said that the white sin of self-righteousness had slain millions of people. Meaning that self-righteousness had kept millions of people out of heaven. Self-righteousness is common. It's very, very deadly. And yet... Self-righteousness is one of the most overlooked sins. Very few human beings ever think about self-righteousness, even in a lot of Christian circles. In, in a lot of Christian churches, self-righteousness is rarely, if ever, mentioned. Many professing Christians never think about self-righteousness. And here in this passage, Jesus is asking us to think about self-righteousness. Jesus gives us two different characters here in this little story, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And these two characters here, they, they really represent two different ways of trying to approach God. They really represent two different ways of, of trying to get to heaven. And we'll look at these two different ways of trying to approach God in just a second. Let me kind of set the stage for this parable first. If you look at verse 9 again, Luke says, Jesus also told this parable 
to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And Luke is basically giving you the setting for this parable that Jesus will teach here. When, when Jesus originally told this story here, the people who, who were standing around him at the time were people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And another way to say that is, would just be to simply say that these people were self-righteous people. They were convinced in their own minds that they were righteous or that they were in a right standing with God because of who they were or because of what they did and didn't do in this life. They, they thought they were good people, thought they were holy people, thought God was pleased with them on the basis of their performance. You think of self-righteousness, you know, it, it, it could be a complicated topic. It's really not. Self-righteousness is simply a righteousness that's built on self. It's a righteousness that is built on you because of who you are or because of the things you do or don't do in your life on the basis of your performance, you become convinced that you are righteous, that you are good and acceptable and pleasing to God. A righteousness built on self, a righteousness built on you. And the people surrounding Jesus on this occasion were self-righteousness. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And, Luke says, they treated others with contempt. They, they, they literally looked down on other people in disdain or in disgust. We might say that they looked down their noses at other people. And man, that right there, that right there is something that you will always find with self-righteousness. Self-righteousness and looking down on other people, they always go hand in hand. They're, they're seriously like this, this ugly conjoined twins. That They're always together. Self-righteousness in your heart will always cause you to look down on various people for various reasons. You believe that you are better than other people. You, you, you believe that you are morally superior. You, you are holier than other people for some reason. You, 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 you think inside that you've made better choices in your life than these other people maybe. You, you, your, your performance has been better than, than these other people. You, you've towed the line better than they have and you consequently look down your nose at them. And those are the people around Jesus here. That they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they, they treated others with contempt. That was the original setting for this parable here. And the two main characters of the parable are in verse 10. Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you think about those two men here for just a second, Pharisee, tax collector. Those men in first century Jewish culture, they were polar opposites. Okay, just think for a second about the Pharisee. 
You know, you know, you and I hear the word Pharisee, and a lot of us instantly think that this man was probably an arrogant jerk. Uh, he was a religious hypocrite. And when we tend to think like that about the Pharisees because in the Bible, Jesus constantly exposed the Pharisees to be those types of people. On, on many different occasions in the Bible, Jesus shows us that many of the Pharisees in his day were religious hypocrites. But listen, we need to be very careful that we don't read our view of the Pharisees back into this story. Because most people in first century Israel, they did not view the Pharisees to be religious hypocrites. No, the, the, the Pharisees were considered to be some of the best people on earth at the time. The, the Pharisees were, were the, largest religious, uh, the largest Jewish religious group in Israel at the time. And man, the Pharisees, for the most part, were very, very well-respected people. They, they, they were very moral people. They, they were very devout in their religion. They were politically influential people. Josephus, the famous historian, he described the Pharisees as, quote, a body of Jews known for surpassing the others in observance of piety and exact interpretation of the laws. The Pharisees, by and large, were the cream of the crop in this first century Jewish society. They were the best of the best in people's eyes. They were, they were the moral, the, the upstanding, the, the good citizens in Israel. You, now you think about the people standing around Jesus on this occasion, he tells the story. When, when Jesus mentions the word Pharisee, the people standing around Jesus don't instantly think hypocrite. No, they, they probably instantly think now that is a really good man. That is the best of all men. But the tax collector here in this story was on the other end of the spectrum in first century Israel. The Jewish people, for the most part, they, they loved and respected the Pharisees. They despised the tax collectors. Uh, Israel at this time was under Roman control, part of the Roman Empire. The Jews hated the Romans who controlled them, and the tax collectors were, were, were Jews who were taking taxes from Jews for the Romans. So the tax collectors were essentially working for the enemy. But it wasn't just that the tax collectors were working for the enemy. No, the tax collectors would also often add a personal surcharge to the taxes that they took from the Jews. So they weren't just working for the enemy. They were also getting rich off of their own people by working for the enemy. The Jewish people hated the tax collectors. They were considered to be traitors, Benedict Arnold's, the scum of the earth, 
low of the low, the immoral, low-standing, terrible citizens in Israel, so despicable, in fact, that tax collectors were not able to hold public office, and their testimony was not accepted in a Jewish court of law. When the people around Jesus heard the word tax collector, in their minds, they would have thought, now that is horrible man. And there you have it, the two characters for this parable, Pharisee and tax collector. Why did Jesus choose these two people to be the main characters for his parable? I I, I think it's something like this. In the eyes of this first century Jewish crowd around Jesus here, you have on one hand the best possible man, the Pharisee, and on the other hand you have the worst possible man, the tax collector. You have the cream of the crop and you have the scum of the earth. You have the good guy and the bad guy. And Jesus says here that both of these men go into the temple to pray. Now, the Pharisee may have been in the temple a thousand times before this to pray. But this might have been the tax collector's first time to ever go into the temple to pray. Tax collectors didn't typically go into the temple to pray. They both go in here to pray. So that's the setting and the main characters. Now, let's think for a few minutes about the two different ways of approaching God that we can see here in this parable. These these two different ways of trying to get to heaven. One way of trying to approach God that we can see here in this parable is what I would call self-exaltation. You try to lift yourself up to God somehow. And we can see this self-exaltation in the Pharisee here. You look at verse 11 again. Jesus says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, he's gone into the temple and now he's standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice. I give tithes of all that I get. So the the Pharisee here, he's he's walked into the temple, or Jesus could be saying there he's walked into the temple courtyard. We don't know. He's he's either in the temple or the temple courtyard. Jesus seems to indicate here in this passage that the Pharisee walked right up to the front of the temple or the temple courtyard because he says later about the tax collector that the tax collector stood far off or he stood at a distance. And it seems to be that Jesus is saying the tax collector stood way in the back of the temple or the temple courtyard, but the Pharisee moved right up front next to the holier parts of the temple or the temple courtyard, right up towards the the altar, maybe. And it was common in first century Israel for religious leaders to, to stand while praying. Their eyes were typically open. Their, their heads were typically lifted towards heaven. On many, many occasions, their, their hands would also be raised up towards heaven. So you can just picture the Pharisee up front here, hands raised, eyes looking up, head looking up towards heaven. And it's very likely that the people around the Pharisee could hear him pray here. It was typical for Pharisees to pray out loud. Other people could hear them praying out loud. And man, this, this Pharisee's prayer here uh, might sound a little strange to you and me. Uh, you listen to that thing. He, he, he starts by thanking God in his prayer, but then he basically just kind of 
talks about himself for the rest of his prayer. God, I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. Hey, here's what I do. I fast. I tithe. He, he kind of thanks God and kind of starts talking about himself. Uh, it sounds strange to us, but here's the thing. To this first century Jewish crowd standing around Jesus, listening to him tell this story, that wouldn't, wouldn't have sounded like a strange prayer at all. That was actually the way religious leaders prayed in Israel at this time. I'll give you an example. Here's a prayer that was taken from the Talmud, a, a rabbinic prayer from this particular period of time right around there. I've read this to you before. Just listen to this prayer from the Talmud and see how similar it is to the prayer that you find here in the book of Luke. It goes like this. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, for I rise early and they rise early, but I rise early for words of law and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor and they labor, but I labor for a reward and they labor and do not receive a reward. I run and they run, but I run to the life of the future world and they run to the pit of destruction. That's a rabbinic prayer from the Talmud. That was the way religious leaders prayed back then. You, you thanked God and then kind of talked about yourself. You, you, you really kind of patted yourself on the back to God. You congratulated yourself to God. You commended or you, you, you recommended yourself to God, reminding Him who you were and what you did and didn't do in this life. And that's what the Pharisee did here. Verse 11 says that the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, and that's fine, but the Greek there could also be translated as the Pharisee standing prayed to himself or prayed about himself. And I think that's what Jesus is probably trying to tell us here, that the Pharisee standing in the temple prayed about himself. He's commending or recommending himself to God. He's presenting to God this moral resume of sorts, this list of moral credentials. If you look at his prayer carefully, in this prayer, he uses the word I five different times. And he is always the active subject in the prayer. I did this. I did that. I don't do this. I don't do that. And the entire way through his prayer, he's comparing himself to other men. I'm not like other men, God. I'm not like other Man, I'm not an extortioner, God. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a thief or a swindler like other men. I'm not unjust. I'm not an, an adulterer. No, no, God, I've, I've never been with any woman but my own wife. No, I'm, I'm not those things. And God, I'm, I'm definitely, definitely not like this horrible tax collector back here. No, I'm, I'm not those things, but... but Here's, here's what I am, God. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I'm a great guy, God. And, and, and I thank you, God. I thank you for making me into a great guy. And 
That's his prayer. Sounds crazy to us, but man, that, that was a typical prayer for a Pharisee. And to this crowd here listening to Jesus, that prayer there that Jesus just said, that would not have raised any red flags with this crowd around Jesus. They, they, when, when they heard Jesus say that this Pharisee prayed like that, they, they would not have instantly thought that's an arrogant jerk praying a ridiculous prayer. They would have thought that is a really good man praying a perfectly good prayer. Now, we read that parable in the 21st century, it's lost a bit of its shock value. Because we know more about the Pharisees at this time because of what Jesus has told us. But man, the people in the crowd here, this Pharisee was a good man praying a good prayer. No problem whatsoever with this Pharisee. And, and, and Jesus then drops a bomb on this crowd. Because he says down in verse 14 that when this Pharisee here returned to his home later that day, he was not justified. And that means that, that this Pharisee was declared to be not righteous by God. He was not innocent in the eyes of God. He was not in a right standing with God. He was not on his way to heaven. And man, you, you, listen, this, this crowd here listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have been absolutely shocked to hear Jesus say that. What? That man? That, that, that religious? Devout, that devout man? Moral man? The, 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 the best man in our society? The cream of the crop? Not justified? Not righteous? Not on his way to heaven? No way. No way. Man, that would have been like a slap in the face to this crowd in front of Jesus on this occasion. And man, why, why did Jesus say this about this Pharisee here, that he was not justified? Well, because there was a problem with this man. It, you know, it, it, the problem wasn't necessarily on the surface where, where you could see it. I'm, I'm sure the man looked great to the naked eye. The problem was in his heart. The, deep, deep in his heart, at the core of his being, this man was nothing but self-righteous. He was trusting in himself that he was righteous. His religion was a religion of self-exaltation. It was a religion built on you. Who you are and what you do and don't do. It was a religion built on your performance. You do some things, you don't do other things, and on the basis of the things that you do and don't do, you supposedly lift yourself up toward God, and at some point, you eventually convince yourself and other people that you are right with God on the basis of your performance. And then you begin to look down on other people because their performance just doesn't seem to measure up to yours. 
self-righteousness, a religion built on self-exaltation. might look good on the surface, but under the surface, it's nothing but human pride. I, me, my pride. Religion built on you, who you are, what you do and don't do. It's a very clean-looking form of human pride, but it's pride nonetheless. It's human pride dressed in religious, moralistic clothing. And it is not acceptable in the eyes of God, no matter how good it looks on the surface. Now, there's something we desperately need to understand about human pride. Here it is. God hates it. God hates it. God hates it. God absolutely hates human pride. Jonathan Edwards once said that, that pride is the worst viper that lives in the human heart. God hates human pride. And he, here's the thing. God hates every form of human pride. God even hates the very religious forms of human pride that look so good to us. The, the, the forms of pride that we think would be so pleasing to God. These moralistic, religious, squeaky clean forms of self-righteous pride. God hates them. Self-righteousness, self-exaltation. Man, it can make you look so good on the surface. Everybody around you thinking that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it's an abomination to God. And it doesn't get you to heaven. But man, please hear me. A lot of people in our world, they think self-righteousness does get you to heaven. The people in this crowd here listening to Jesus, they would have been shocked to hear that this Pharisee was not on the road to heaven. And you know what? If Jesus, if Jesus were to tell a similar story in our day, people would be shocked too. A lot of people in our generation would be shocked. You think about it. Who is this Pharisee in our day? Who is the modern day Pharisee here in this story? Take him out of the parable, plop him in the 21st century. Who is he? You know who he is? This modern day Pharisee? He is not the guy who seems like an arrogant jerk right off the bat. No, he's the guy who seems like a really great guy right off the bat. The best possible man in your society. He's the cream of the crop. He's the best of the best. He's the most moral-looking man in our society. He follows all the rules. He's very well respected by other people. He's socially conscious. He's politically influential. He performs kind deeds. He treats his neighbors with respect. He mows his yard. He takes his kids out on play dates. He's faithful to his wife. He always cleans up after his dog. He votes. He recycles. 
He's devout when it comes to religious things. He may have been baptized in a Christian church. He tries to do the things the Bible commands. He tries not to do the things the Bible forbids. He attends a church service regularly. He prays. He fasts. He even tithes. The modern-day Pharisee is a squeaky clean church man, a squeaky clean church woman. And you're going to tell us, Jesus, that that squeaky clean church man or woman is not justified? Not righteous in God's eyes? Not on his way to heaven? Come on. And every single generation finds it very, very hard to believe that moralistic, religious, self-righteous people don't go to heaven when they die. And if you don't believe me, go to the modern-day Pharisee's funeral when he dies. Take him out of this parable, plop him in the 21st century, wait till he dies, go to his funeral. What are you going to hear at the funeral? 99% of the people at his funeral will be talking about how much that man is now enjoying heaven. Oh, he's enjoying, he's enjoying the big man upstairs. It's always called the big man. Raising a toast to the modern day Pharisee in heaven. And Jesus walks into that funeral parlor and he looks at all the people and says, he's not in heaven. He's in hell. That would be an absolute shock to many, many people in our generation. That would be an absolute shock to many, many church people in our generation. Every generation, man, finds it incredibly hard to believe that self-righteous, moralistic, religious people don't go to heaven when they die. But, but please listen. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. In spite, of, in spite of everything that this Pharisee in this story here has going on on the surface, in, in, in spite of all of his kind deeds and his charitable, charitable works, and in spite of all of his devout religious practices, even though everyone in society views him to be the greatest person on the planet, Jesus says he's not justified. He's not righteous. He's not on his way to heaven. Because deep in his heart, at the core of his being... He's trusting in self. He, he's convinced that he's righteous before God. He's good and acceptable in the eyes of God because of who he is. Because of what he has and hasn't done in this life. Self-righteousness, a righteousness built on you. Religion of self-exaltation. And listen, man, there are people like that in churches all over the world today. People who are 
baptized, attend services, carry a Bible, try to do good things, try not to do bad things, pray fast, maybe even tithe. They say they trust in Jesus probably, but deep inside they really trust in self. Squeaky clean, moralistic, devout self-righteousness. And it seems like it should get you to heaven, right? In everything else you do in life, you got to perform well to move on up. At your job, you, you perform well, you get a promotion. You're on the baseball team, you perform well, you play for the varsity. You perform well, you move up. It seems like that should be the way it works with God. You perform well and you move on up. It seems like the way to heaven. But it's not. It's not. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And the white sin of self-righteousness that has slain millions. So that's one way of trying to approach God that we find here in this passage, self-exaltation. Thankfully, Jesus shows us another way here to try to approach God, a way that really does get you to heaven. And the second way to approach God we see here in this passage is what I would call (laughs) self-humbling. You don't try to lift yourself up to God. You lower yourself before God. And we can see that in the tax collector. Man, this tax collector... (laughs) This guy who was viewed by the people in his society as a horrible man, the scum of the earth, lowest of the low. And, And listen, he probably was that. Don't look at this guy and get all sympathetic and think, oh, no, he was really a good guy. No, I think Jesus is saying he was a jerk. He was a traitor. He was a horrible man. But this guy, Jesus says, when he leaves the temple and returns home later in the day, Jesus says in verse 14 that he is justified. He's he's righteous in in a right standing in God's eyes. This nasty-looking tax collector, not the squeaky-clean-looking Pharisee, walked home to his house as an innocent man. Man, once again, (laughs) <laughs> this first century Jewish crowd, when, when they heard Jesus say that the tax collector and not the Pharisee was justified, they would have been stunned. And you know what? If Jesus told a similar story in our day, many people in our generation would also be stunned. Because who is the tax collector in our generation? Take him out of this parable. Plop him in in our generation. Who is this guy who was just justified by Jesus Christ? You know who he is? A pimp. He's a prostitute. She is a prostitute. Drug dealer. Wino. Child molester. And you're going to tell me that that guy is justified when he goes home? Righteous in God's eyes, innocent in God's eyes. Come on. Man, it just doesn't make sense to our natural minds that, 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 that a man like this tax collector could be justified by God. Why? Why, why doesn't that make sense to our minds? I, I think it's like this. Because he hasn't done anything great. He hasn't lived a moral life. 
He hasn't lived a religious life. He hasn't performed charitable deeds. Nothing. He has betrayed. He has stolen. He has used other people for his own selfish gain in this life. A totally self-centered existence up to the point when he first entered the temple here. An unrighteous man to the nth degree. But when he leaves the temple, righteous. That's shocking. And what did he do here in the temple that led to his righteousness? Just a couple of very simple things, I think. So simple and yet deeply profound. You look at verse 13 again. Jesus says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Several, several very simple things there. I believe one, he humbled himself. He didn't try to lift himself up to God. He lowered himself before God. Jesus says there that the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. You know, it's a statement about his eyes, but I think it probably goes much deeper than that. I think Jesus is telling us something there about the condition of his heart. This man is lifting nothing up to God, not even his eyes. There's no self-exaltation whatsoever there. No commending of himself to God. No no moral resume or, or list of moral credentials that he's holding up to God. No self-righteousness whatsoever. His eyes, along with his heart, everything in his whole being is saying, No price in my hands I bring God. There is nothing good that I have to offer you, God. Nothing at all. He's not exalting himself. He's humbling himself. Man, the Pharisee here was probably lifting his eyes. He was lifting his head. He was lifting his hands. He was lifting his whole being, exalting himself as high as he could up towards God. Look at me, God. And the tax collector's going in the exact opposite direction, not going high. He's going low. He humbled himself. Number two, he confessed his sin. Jesus says here that he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and listen, in the Greek, there's actually a definite article that goes before the word sinner. So literally, he's literally saying there, not just that he is a sinner, he is literally saying there that he is the sinner. He is the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The Pharisee was exalted in his own mind, looking down at other people, but in the tax collector's mind, there's nobody beneath him. There's nobody below him. He's at the bottom of the barrel, the lowest of the low. He is the sinner as far as he's concerned, the worst sinner, the foremost of all sinners, as the Apostle Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. And man, when you see yourself in that light, when you truly see yourself as the foremost of all sinners, the sinner, you stop looking down at other people in contempt and disgust and disdain. Stop judging other people. Man, this, this tax collector, he sees it here. 
he sees his sin and, and he confesses it. And, and listen, everybody around this man here probably heard him confess it. I don't think he's saying this stuff under his breath here. This man is beating his chest. I think he's crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And everybody around him hears it. He humbled himself. He confessed his sin to God and to man, most likely. And number three, man, he begged for God's mercy. Be merciful to me, God. Please extend mercy to me. And man, you know what this tax collector was really saying right there when he's asking God for mercy? You know what he's saying? Please don't give me what I deserve, God. Please don't give me what I deserve. Man, you don't ever want to raise yourself up before God and tell him to give you what you deserve. You know why? Because you and I deserve nothing but wrath from God. You owe God a perfect life. He created you, commands you to obey Him. He didn't ask you for just a partially perfect life. He asked you for a perfect life. And if you haven't lived that perfect life, then the only thing that you deserve from God is His immediate and unending wrath. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. You want God to not give you what you deserve. You want God to give you mercy. You want God to turn his wrath away from you. And that's what the tax collector is asking for right there. The English translation there is, God, be merciful to me. But it could also be translated as God be propitiated to me. And that word propitiated or propitiation is a gigantic biblical word. It's a word that has to do with the turning away of God's wrath from you. When this tax collector here asks God to be merciful to him or to be propitiated to him, he's asking God to turn his wrath away from him. Don't give me the wrath I deserve, God. Please, 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 please give me something that I don't deserve. Give me mercy, God. Give me mercy. Man, you know what? That right there, that is the type of language that God hears. And that is something that God can do for you. He can turn his wrath away from you. And do you know why God can turn his wrath away from you? Jesus. Christ. That's the only reason. 1 John 4.10 says that God sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. God, because he loved us so much, he sent his own son, Jesus, in the world to, to take on the cross the wrath that we deserve. He sent Jesus to be our propitiation, the one who draws the wrath of God away from us. And Jesus did that in order that every sinner who truly humbles himself 
and confesses his sin and cries out to him for mercy might be saved from God's wrath. And that's not something that you and I deserve. That's called mercy. Don't exalt yourself and ask God to give you what you deserve. Humble yourself and ask God to not give you what you deserve. Ask him for mercy. And this tax collector here, scum of the earth, didn't do anything great to make himself righteous. He simply humbled himself, confessed his sin, begged for mercy, and God made him righteous. God made him righteous, the free gift of righteousness. Through Jesus Christ, that brings justification to all who truly trust in Christ, Romans chapter 5. That is the way to approach God, the only way to truly get to God. A poem by Richard Crashaw says this, quote, Two men went to pray, or rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dare not send his eye. One nearer to the altar trod, but the other to the altar's God. Two ways to approach God, self-exaltation, self-humbling, but only one of them will actually get you to God. And man, the sad truth is that the people who tend to take the one true road to God, the people who tend to truly humble themselves, confess their sin, and beg for mercy from God, are not typically the Pharisees of this world. Squeaky clean religious people. They're the tax collectors. The pimps, the prostitutes, the drug dealers, the winos. In Matthew 21, 31, Jesus says to the Pharisees of the world, Jesus says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. They will truly humble themselves, confess their sins, and beg for mercy, but you won't. Charles Spurgeon, he once preached a sermon on just the Pharisee here in this parable, just pulled him out, preached a sermon on just the Pharisee, and this was the title to his sermon. Just too good to be saved. Just too good to be saved. Man, the Pharisees of the world, many of them just too good and too proud to humble themselves, confess, and beg for mercy. And Jesus sums it up all up down there at the end of verse 14. Look at what he says. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you try to exalt yourself in the eyes of God, and in the eyes of other human beings in this life, you will be humbled in the end. You will be brought down. But if you will humble yourself in this life before God and before other people, 
you will be exalted in the end. You'll be brought up. Man, do you realize what that means? That means that we have hope. That's good news right there. Because listen, if, if, if Jesus told us to exalt ourselves and make ourselves righteous in order to enter heaven, no one would. We'd never be good enough. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't ask us to go that way. He asks us to go that way. And man, we can do that by the grace of God. So let me encourage you to do it. Humble yourself before God. Have you ever done it? Have you ever done it? You may have gone to church for years. Have you ever truly humbled yourself before God? Let me encourage you to do it. Get on your knees. Get on your knees tonight. Humble, humble yourself before God. Confess your sin. Have you ever done that? You know there's a lot of people in church services all over the world today say they trust in Jesus and they never confess sin. Never confess sin to another human being. That's a frightening place to be. And you know, a lot of people will tell you, well, I've confessed my sins to God, but I'm uncomfortable confessing to human beings. Listen, do you know why you don't want to confess to human beings? Pride. It's easy to run off into your closet and confess to God when nobody sees it, but to confess to another human being, that's humbling. And you know what will keep you out of heaven? Pride. I encourage you, confess your sins. Get on your knees. Confess to God tonight. Confess to a spouse. Tell your spouse what's going on in your life. Come up to me after the service. Tell me. Confess your sin. Bring it into the light. Confess your sin. And beg for mercy. Beg for mercy. Beg for mercy. And trust in Christ. And man, you, you do those things, and you will receive a righteousness from God, from Christ, a free gift that will last into eternity. And when you die, you, you'll go to heaven. Because Jesus makes a promise right here, a promise that cannot fail. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. I just pray for faith, Lord God, to believe that the way to enter heaven is not to climb high, but to go low. And, Lord, none of us will go low in and of ourselves. We are very, very proud at heart. We will fight that. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would help us. You give us grace to humble ourselves, confess our sins. And not just to confess our sins once, but over and over again. Even more, the longer we go as Christians. And to beg for mercy, Lord God. And we thank you that you are a God who pours out mercy on horrible sinners who come to you, come to Christ for help. Give us faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.